Well, thank you, Joel and Susan and Mike, for leading us in our musical worship this morning. It's always great to be able to be here in this same room singing together the praises of Christ. Never want to take that for granted. I recently received an email, just just a couple of weeks ago, from a denominational media publication. And they're wanting to produce an article on, as the the individual who contacted me said, they, they want to produce an article on what God is doing in our church. Now generally, this is not the first time I've received that kind of a request, so generally I, I kind of know what they want. I've read these articles before, and normally they're not wanting to know all the bad stuff that's going on. They don't want to know all the hard things necessarily. What they really are looking for is some kind of tangible signs of increase in development and uh, measurable increases that, uh, in my estimation, don't always reveal the true, truest spiritual state of what's going on in our church. Because it's hard to make those those things, the true spiritual nature of what's happening in the church, it's hard to make that uh, measurable all of the time. And it's hard to really reflect that in a short little media piece. And the reality is, is that God is always active among us, even when congregational life's more difficult, when the numerical growth appears slow, when the budget is tighter, God's still at work, isn't he? He's still doing a lot among us, things that we may not realize. And we know the truth also that God's activity is not necessarily determined by externally happy people because we know that friendliness can be faked. Numerical increase can be achieved by secular marketing techniques. Financial windfalls don't always mean that giving is generous and glad-hearted. Now, I, I, I'm thankful because I think the Lord is at work in some marvelous ways. And we've seen a number of recent conversions to Christ. I think for the most part, we have emerged from the COVID climate with relative unity among our congregation, which I don't take that for granted. Our responses to recent illnesses and even death have yielded God-centered responses, heavenward kinds of hope, which deeply encourages me when I, I interact with people who are going through such trials. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to get more engaged globally now that we can actually travel again and looking forward to the fall when we have such opportunities in front of us and and perhaps even more and we're even seeing some of our members being able to go back out into the countries where the Lord has put them to serve and that's not a small thing that's a great thing to see God at work in those ways we've seen a good number of new faces here we've actually seen unprecedented giving in our church All of those things, I don't want to take any of them for granted, and I want to give thanks to God for all of them. But we've had harder days in the past too, haven't we? We've had harder days. When the budget wasn't as prosperous, and the crowds weren't necessarily as large, and the happiness of the congregation was challenged, was God less at work then than now? I think we know the answer is to say no. That's what you say in church when the preacher asks that rhetorical question. But when the days are harder, do you start to question whether or not God is favorably at work among us? I wonder what kind of article the ancient church media might have written about the church in Thessalonica when Paul was there. Many citizens in Thessalonica hated that church. There were citywide riots because of the the Christianity being expressed in, in that little congregation. Government officials opposed them. Members were being persecuted, some of them even martyred. And false teaching was actually on the rise with the potential to deceive, to deceive some of the members who were in that congregation. What kind of article would you write then? Well, we don't have to wonder, do we? It's in front of us. Here's the article. Here's what the apostle, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says about this church. And I want you to see how Paul begins these comments at a church that is in a hostile environment. And my guess is, if they were measuring the budget, this wasn't their greatest days of prosperity. And if you showed up to church every week like this congregation showed up to church every week, 
Some of your members weren't there because they were martyred that week. My guess is what happened on Sunday did not resemble a pep rally. My guess is that at times there was more weeping than there was clapping. Was God at work? The apostle said, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. When Paul thought about this church, and he obviously, from what we read here, thought about them often, when he thought about this congregation, he was deeply grateful to God for everything that he could see that God was doing in this church. The evidence of God's work was evident. It was clear. There was no guesswork there. He was deeply grateful. Gratitude is actually the theme of these first three chapters. It's repeated often here. Not only in verse two, we give thanks, but also There's gratitude expressed about how this church welcomed the scriptures in chapter 2, verse 13, when Paul says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. He was grateful for how they were responding to the persecution surrounding them. Chapter 3, verse 9, what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? And this he expresses after he was wondering if they even were holding to the faith. And Timothy had to come and said, yes, they're strong and they're vibrant despite the widespread persecution. Paul's heart just erupted with gratitude, so much so that he would tell them at the end of the book, you know what you need to do, church? You need to be, chapter 5, verse 18, grateful in everything. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything, God is at work. God is at work. It is hard, it is difficult, it is challenging, but God is at work. Be grateful, be thankful. I think we all recognize that when the externals of life are difficult, gratitude is one of the most difficult, difficult qualities to express. In fact, I I think we all know this too. Unless you are intentional and focused in how you see the challenges around you, it will be almost impossible to be grateful in them. Just look at your own heart over this last week. What are you you frustrated with? What are you sour about? What, What do you find yourself constantly on edge over? What has you really fretting. Is God at work in those things? Isn't he? You belong to him. He's at work in everything. Give thanks. So Paul is explicit in how he intentionally cultivates genuine, spiritual, godly gratitude. This word of thanksgiving in verse 2, we give thanks, actually controls everything in this chapter and literally, as I've mentioned, everything in the first three chapters of the book. And he shows us this in some really interesting ways. He expresses his gratitude through, if we were looking at it grammatically, there's three participles or three different ways in which Paul says he's showing gratitude and you can see them. He shows his gratitude in verse 2 by making mention of you in our prayers. That's how he demonstrates gratitude. In verse 3, there's another participle, there's another word that says how he's giving thanks. He's constantly bearing in mind. There's the content of his gratitude. In verse 4 is another participle, another verb that shows a connection to his gratitude. Why is he giving thanks to them? Because, and how is he expressing it? Because he knows God's choice of you. That moves him to gratitude. He's praying, he's remembering, and he knows. And everything that he knows and everything he calls to mind, and in every time that he prays, he finds himself grateful. Now that takes some intentionality, I think. We're going to look at these. This morning, we'll just look at the first of 
the, the first two of the three expressions of gratitude. Next week, we'll concentrate on the next one. But I want you to see how it is that we could cultivate a constant, godly gratitude for our church, because that's what Paul is doing here. Do you find yourself constantly grateful for the congregation the Lord has put you in? And over what is that gratitude? How do you express it? What would cultivate it? Because here's what I know. Times of difficulty and prosperity, they ebb and flow. They come and go. And if you are not intentional and focused, circumstances will depend, will determine how you respond. They will. You'll get blown around by whatever the world seems to be doing around us unless you're intentional and you're focused in your gratitude. How do you cultivate that? Maybe you found yourself mumbling under your breath at times, complaining in your heart at times for what you're not seeing in your church, what you're not experiencing, what, you, what you're, you're thinking, is, is God really at work? Well, I, I want us to be constantly thankful because we should be. He's always at work in us. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. It doesn't matter even how we feel about it. God is at work. And we all know what that work is leading us toward. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, he told us what that work is leading towards. And that is to conform all of us to the image of Christ. We know from the end of the Bible, he's bringing the sum of all human history to one conclusion that ends in the glory of Christ in his people. So we know what he's up to. We know what he's doing in every single circumstance. So how do you cultivate gratitude, particularly for your church, even in the midst of difficulties? Well, this morning we're going to look at two, what I would call intentional disciplines. That's what they are. They're disciplines that cultivate genuine godly gratitude for our church. How do you do that? I'd love to see you flesh this out practically in your life. These two intentional disciplines that cultivate genuine, godly gratitude for your church. The first is found in verse 2. It is intentional intercession. Now we just finished a lengthy series, a couple of weeks, three or four weeks on prayer. We've been talking a lot about prayer. I've loved hearing the feedback from from you as you've talked about how you're applying God's word in your own personal prayer life. Here we get another example of it. Intentional intercession. If you want to be a grateful person, you will be a prayerful person. You will be intentionally prayerful in your intercession. You see it in verse 2. At the end of that verse, he tells them, he is making mention of you in our prayers. This is how Paul finds and expresses gratitude for this local congregation. He is praying for them. In fact, this is not uncommon with Paul. Some some writers have even said, well, he always says this. So does he really mean it? I mean, this is how he introduces all of his letters. Maybe this is just a, a normal greeting of the ancient world. This is how you start a letter. It's not what he really does. No, I, I don't think Paul lives that way. Do you? I think if he says it, it's probably because he's doing it. And he does say it at the beginning of almost all of his letters to the churches, except for the churches in Galatia. That's the only book where you won't find this intentional thanksgiving and I, I don't know exactly what was going in those churches. I know there was some some challenge going on, but in every single one, even the wild horses of first of first Corinthians, second Corinthians, that wild church, he's expressing deep gratitude to God for them. You'll find it in all of his letters virtually. Consistent, Godward, personal intercession is what will cultivate constant godly gratitude in your heart for your church. It's what Paul said in Colossians 4 too. You need to devote yourselves to prayer. That's congregationally. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving keeps you mindful and alert in prayer. Now I want you to see the details emphasized here in the way that Paul expresses his intercession. If you want to have a constant kind of intercession that cultivates gratitude, what will it look like? Let me give you a couple of qualities here. First, it has to be a consistent intercession. 
a consistent intercession. Now I want you to notice something. Look at the the words in verse 2. We give thanks and making mention of you. These are in the Greek grammar that Paul writes this in. This is what uh, is referred to as a present tense verb. Now here's our Greek grammar lesson for the day, or at least one of them. You ready? Now you might know this because we've talked about this often. When you see the present tense in a verb, it doesn't mean it's something that's happening right now. It's talking about something that's going on as a habit. It's always happening. So we could actually read this as we are always, we are habitually giving thanks to God for you and we are always constantly making mention of you in our prayers. Now, if you're reading this letter and you're in the first century, you get that. You see the way he uses those verbs and you get this idea. He's just emphatically redundant here. He's always praying for us. And just in case you missed it, he also adds another word. Do you see it in verse 2? We give thanks to God what? Always. I, I mean, this man is redundant. I'm constantly thanking God always for you as I'm always making mention of you in prayer. I just want you to get it into your mind, church. I can't get you out of my mind. You are constantly on my mind. I'm bringing you to my mind. That's what the word mention actually means. I'm remembering you. I'm intentionally recalling you as I pray for you. It is consistent. It's consistent. Always mentioning you in prayer. The word always is used by Paul a number of times. And it is fascinating if you look them up. It is mentioned in relationship to the way he prays for each of the churches. You remember I I mentioned that in the beginning of most of his letters. He is expressing his gratitude in prayer for them. And he uses that word always to describe the way he prays for these churches. He's always praying for them. Now I wonder... I was thinking through this and, and I start saying, I, I wonder if this means that Paul is just, as he goes through his day, he's just recalling them as it comes up. He just kind of walks through the day and he's praying all the time. I'm sure that's true. He'll tell them at the end of this book that they should pray always. So I'm sure that's true. But I have, I believe that what he's talking about here is he is referring to constant, specific, devoted, dedicated times of prayer. And it happens consistently throughout his day, day in and day out. I want you to think about this. It was typical for most Jews to have constant, dedicated times of prayer every day in their life. Not just in a morning quiet time. If you were a really dedicated Jewish person, you had a morning time of prayer, you had an evening time of prayer. And those times of prayer were constant. They didn't move. You you built your day around those times of prayer. That's how significant prayer was to the typical Jewish person. We learn from Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 that he actually prayed in dedicated, concentrated, consistent times of prayer at least three times a day, right? And matter of fact, when it was outlawed for him to pray that way, guess what he did? He prayed anyway. And that didn't mean that he, I mean, he could have just gone about his day not saying anything and just prayed to God and no one would have ever known. He didn't do that. He interrupted his day. And he went to a place of prayer and opened up the windows and audibly began praying so that everybody knew he was praying. He didn't didn't alter anything. He was constantly in prayer. I think that's kind of what Paul has in mind here. My guess is that he and his ministry friends that we have mentioned here, Sylvanus and Timothy, they more than likely stopped at certain times of their day and dedicated times of prayer and it was constant and it was consistent. It's not too much to ask, friends, that we pray in dedicated, consistent times of prayer every single day. That's not too much to ask. It's not too much to expect. It's, it's even less than the biblical expectation, isn't it? The biblical expectation is that there are numerous times of dedicated prayer in your life. Could we, could we have one time a day? It harkens back to Jesus saying, could you not tarry even an hour to pray? Well, Paul, he's so grateful for them because he's so consistent in prayer. I I would gather to say 
the more consistent you are in praying for the congregation you're a part of, the greater your gratitude will grow. It's hard not to be grateful when you're constantly interceding for God's work among God's people. It's consistent. Secondly, notice about his, his intercession here and his, the intentionality of it. It's God-centered. Don't miss that he says, we give thanks to God. He didn't have to put that there. I mean, isn't it assumed if you're giving thanks, you're not just thinking the spirit out there somewhere. You're not thinking Mother Earth. You're not thinking people. You're thanking God. Isn't that assumed? Why put that in there? So that they understand that he is in front of the Father who oversees all things. This is, this is Paul's life. He thinks of all of life in terms of how it relates to God. God is sovereign over all things. God is involved in everything. And so when I think of you and all of what you're going through, I give thanks to God for you, for what you're going through, how you're enduring it, what's being cultivated in your life. My heart is flooded with gratitude to God. And how encouraging is that for him to say that to them? I am constantly thankful to God for what God is doing in your midst. And notice, he tells them that. He doesn't just assume it. He doesn't just do it and never say it to them. He actually looks them in the face. My guess is when he's with them, he would say to them, I thank God for you. How often have have those words come from your lips toward the people who are sitting near you in this church? You've looked at them and you've said, "I, I really thank God for you. I thank God for what he's doing in your life. I thank God for your, your investment in me and, and the investment we get to enjoy with each other together. How often are you intentionally saying, I thank God, very Godward in your gratitude? Not just generally grateful. The world talks that way. I mean, isn't it funny to, to listen to the news reports when a disaster happens in the world and they say, our thoughts or they'll even say at times our prayers and you wonder yeah but you were just bagging on the church you know last week and and who are you giving thanks for we're really thankful that lives were saved to whom are you thankful well let's not leave any doubt we see God at the center of everything it's intentionality it's God word third I want you to see about this intercession it's personal it's personal The intentional intercession is personal. We're always giving thanks to God, always for all of you, constantly making mention of you in our prayers. It's for all of you, mentioning you. For all of you. Now, you know, we've talked about this before in the past. In Greek, the word you can either be singular or plural. It can be you or y'all. Now, if he meant for this to be congregational, just the statement to say, all of you as a whole, one church, I'm thankful for you. He could have said, I'm thankful for y'all and mean it congregational. I don't think that's what he says here because he adds another word. I am thankful for all of you. He's again redundant. Plural you, y'all. This is the southern all y'all. You think I'm joking, but it is. It is. It's as if he's saying, I'm thinking of faces and names and specific circumstances and situations that are going on in the lives of the people of your congregation. And I am constantly grateful for each of you, for each of you. Yes, all of you together, but each of you individually, I am grateful for. Now, I don't know if he had a church directory or not. Maybe he did. Maybe, maybe he had, uh, I mean, I know he had notebooks, right? He tells Timothy at the end of his life, bring the books. I need them. Maybe in those books are the names of people in the congregations that he started and he saw founded under his gospel ministry. Somehow he's bringing to mind specific people, specific names and faces that are in his mind and he's praying for them. I mean, he was there at a, 
when, not only when this church was founded, he was there during the city riots. Those city riots actually ran him out of the city as far south as he could go to the next city. And then he was run out of that city because people in Thessalonica heard he was down there and they came down there and ran him out of that city. So he knows these people. He, they're, they're babes in Christ. He loves them. He was spending enough time with them day in and day out that they knew a lot about him and he knew a lot about them. He loved this congregation. So he's intentionally by name praying for people. Again, I just, I just want to say again, what, what would your gratitude for the church be like if every day of your life, maybe even multiple times of day, you stopped and you were spending intentional time in prayer Naming specific people, praying for specific situations going on in the church. What if you were systematically just praying through our church and the members of our church? What would happen to your gratitude for your church? Again, the more intentional you are, the more consistent you are, the more Godward you are, and the more personal you are, my guess is the greater your gratitude will grow. It's really hard not to be thankful to God if you're constantly praying for God's work among God's people. What would that look like for you this week? What, what needs to change for you to become consistent, Godward, personal in the way that you pray for this congregation? What would, what would that look like? When is it going to happen? Because if you don't plan for it, more than likely, it's not really going to happen. Do you have the directory? A new one's coming out soon, by the way. There's a lot of new faces to add to it. So a new one's coming out soon. Do you have it and do you use it for prayer? Do you walk through a page and look at those pictures and those names? And do you have specific things you're praying for them? That'll impact your gratitude. But there's a second component that cultivates constant gratitude that we want to look at, and it's really the the meat of this, this section. It's not just intentional intercession. Look at the second component. It's intentional reflection. Intentional reflection. If verse 2 was the why of Paul's gratitude, here's the what. Here's the content. Now, what do I mean by the word reflection here? It's found in the opening phrase, constantly bearing in mind. Constantly bearing in mind. That is the normal word for remembering. Again, this is in the present tense also, so this means that he's always remembering them and he adds the word constantly to that. Just again to be very redundant, I'm constantly always remembering you. I'm bringing you up in my mind. It is a habit of intentionality to bring them up, to reflect on them. To think about them, individually and as a whole. We we know this to be true. What you choose to dwell on regularly What you choose to dwell on, how you dwell on it, will define the attitude that you have, right? If you think about someone that you have challenges with, and I know that that's only like three or four of you in here. There's there's some of you, not many of you, I'm sure, there's some of you who have irritants in your life, and those irritants have personal names, don't look at them right now, okay? That's, that's not helpful. No elbow throwing, okay? You have irritants. And there are constant irritants because you're constantly thinking about how irritating they are. You're bringing up, you might have actually some specific things. And we kind of chuckle, but some of it might be heartbreaking, right? Some of it might actually be emotionally debilitating at times to you because you're constantly thinking about that negativity. My guess there were, pro- I guess there, there were problems in this church. I mean, Paul, he says in chapter two, I'm not sure if they even think kindly of me anymore. 
I'm not sure if they're even with me anymore. Maybe they've abandoned me and they've walked away from the gospel and they, they would not want me around anymore. Those kinds of thoughts would not breed gratitude in his heart for the church, would they? That's not how he thinks about them. When he brings them to mind, he's thinking something specific about them. He's bringing to his mind and remembering specific things in them, which is what we need to think about. We need to think about the way we're thinking about people. Because how you dwell on them determines a lot about your, your, your attitude towards them. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this is just a power of positive thinking kind of thing here, that if you'll just get rid of all the negative thinking, that it'll all, all be good. No, I'm not saying overlook sin. I'm thinking concentrate on God who deals with sin. Concentrate on the grace of God that is evident in people's lives around you, even those who might be irritants. What are you choosing to dwell on? What are you choosing to bring up to your memory? What does Paul bring up? This is really fascinating to me. If you look at what the Apostle Paul chooses to call to mind, there is a triad of activities here. There are three of them. I'm bearing in mind your work, your labor, and your steadfastness. That's the activities he brings to mind. Your activity, I think about that. Your devotion, that's your, your labor, and your steadfastness or your endurance. I think about those things, how active you are, how busy you are, how devoted you are, how stable you are. And it makes me grateful. And yet, it's not just activity, it's not just devotion, it's not just endurance that makes him grateful because we know this too. None of those activities are inherently Christian. They're not inherently Christian. Non-Christians can be busy. Non-Christians can actually work hard. Non-Christians can actually endure busy seasons of life, can't they? They can. None of that is inherently Christian. What makes these activities Christians are the terms associated with them. It is a work of faith. It is a labor of love. It is a steadfastness of hope. And it is that trinity of Christian qualities assigned to each one of those activities that makes this Godward gratitude. Do you see it? Would that show up in the article that we would write about what God's doing in our church? How do you measure that? work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. How do you measure those things? I mean, we file a report every year with our our denomination that says, here's stuff that happened in our church. It's a lot about numbers and how much money and how many people and things like that. And every time we fill that out, I'm I'm, I'm just dissatisfied. Yeah, but more happened here than that. A lot more happened. Where do I report... How many people were overcoming their sin? How do I report what marriages were saved this year? How do I report people who got into the word in a deeper degree than they've ever been and I see a joy in their life that has never been there before? How do I report that kind of stuff? That's what I'm interested in reading and that's what I'm excited about in ministry. I love seeing that. But that doesn't make the articles all the time. It's hard hard to quantify it all. But this is what Paul is grateful for. And he constantly brings up their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Interestingly, these three qualities are mentioned frequently by writers in the New Testament. I spent time this week just going through all of the places in the New Testament where all three of these are brought up. You could spend some time reading them. You could jot down Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. You can go read that on your own, and you'll see these three qualities mentioned, faith, love, and hope. We know they're mentioned in the great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. It's mentioned there. You can find them in Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
They're mentioned again in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 2 to 4. They're even mentioned in the book of Hebrews in a couple of places, in chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. And in Hebrews 10, 22, those very powerful verses that had significant impact, I think, in our own congregation when we studied them not that long ago, when the writer says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You'll also find them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-8. through 8. So again, many of the writers in the New Testament are bringing these three qualities up. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. It's almost as if you could say, if you want to see where real maturity in a church lies, you examine their faith and what it's doing. You examine their love and how it's devoted to each other. And you examine their hope and how steadfast it's making them. That's maturity. If you want to talk about maturity in a church, you look at faith love and hope and how those three qualities are expressed and are growing. That's what God cares about. That's the three expressions of true, genuine Christianity, faith, love, and hope. If you want to know whether or not you're a Christian today, and some of you might not be Christians today, you have to examine what do you believe and how does that belief actually show itself? What does love look like in your life toward other people? What does hope look like to you? Are you the person who's completely unstable all the time because you, you can't get your arms around everything, you can't control it, and you're constantly unstable? That could mean you lack real faith in Christ. Because these are the qualities of true Christianity and true maturity. So let's unpack these just a little bit. Because I, I want you to see what Paul means by these three activities here. He's habitually, intentionally reflecting on these three core elements of Christianity that drive his constant gratitude for this church. The first one is we need to reflect on faith-filled activity. And here's, here's my encouragement to you. You want to grow in your gratitude toward the church? Think on this. Reflect on faith-filled activity. Now again, here's a little quick grammar lesson for you in Greek. I'm not going to go into much detail, but I just want you to see the emphasis of it. The way Paul writes these phrases, he's very particular in how he composes them. In the original Greek language, it suggests that these are actions like the work of faith. That action They're actions that flow from the Christian quality emphasized. They're what we call subjective genitives. So what it means is this is work that comes from faith. It's not merely a work that is about faith. It's not just a work that has faith associated with it. It is a work, it is an activity that's actually derived from, flowing from, caused by faith. This labor is a labor that comes from love, not merely a labor that is about love or a a labor that has some love associated with it. It's a labor that is generated by love. It's steadfastness that comes from hope, not a steadfastness that just is about hope or has hope associated with it. It's generated. This steadfastness is generated by hope. So this first one is a work an effort that is produced by faith. Now, you need to think about that. If this is is biblical to you, you should hear this and it should cause a little bit of tension in your mind if you know the Bible well. This is work that comes from faith. Now, we're careful in Christianity to talk about those things, right? Because normally when we talk about works and faith, we're normally saying you can't get faith from doing works, right? Right? And we know that. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You can't just do the old covenant law and generate faith. That's not what makes you a Christian, by doing good things. And we, we do need to be careful with that. But Paul isn't talking about justification 
that comes from works. He's talking about works that come from justification. That's what he's talking about. What happens because you have faith? What happens in your life because you believe? If you say, as James 2 says, I have faith and you have works. James comes back and says, show me your faith by your works. Right? You could just look at that for a moment if you want because James is really emphatic about that in James chapter 2. In verse 14, he'll actually ask the question, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? So you have no efforts? You have no activity? But you say you have faith? Oh, I believe. I believe in Christ. Well, where is it? Well, it doesn't show up very often. Uh, There's not a whole lot of difference between me and my neighbors or my coworkers who don't believe. But I believe. How do you know? How do you know? What is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, here's here's an illustration. If you have a member of your church that doesn't have the basic necessities to actually survive, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, you know what that means? I'll pray for you, brother. I know know you haven't eaten in a week, and you're sleeping out under the freeway, and and your clothes don't fit. They're not going to help you out in the cold. I'll, I'll pray for you. Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and you don't give them what is necessary for their body? What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Someone will, may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons believe that and they shudder. So you have demon-like faith? (laughs) You hear his sarcasm there. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He gives the illustration of Abraham and Rahab, people of true faith, and you see that faith in the way they lived their life. Or a passage like uh, Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of the connection between faith and and works. Ephesians 2, verse 8. You know these verses likely well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. That grace and faith that saves you is not coming from you. It is the gift of God. God gives grace. God gives faith. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. But then the next verse, you know well, right? Because we are his workmanship. He created us. He created us in Christ Jesus for good works. So the way Paul phrases this phrase in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, he is grateful for the work that comes from faith is very important, isn't it? He is not grateful for the works that generated faith. He is grateful for the gift of God that is faith in your life that produces work, efforts. Efforts that are motivated by a heart that is at rest in the complete sufficiency of Jesus and his work. That's what he's referring to here. And what would that look like? Well, again, in 1 Thessalonians, we don't actually have to wonder If you just recall from some of what we said last week, we mentioned that the first three chapters are an emphasis of this first phrase, the work that comes from faith. In chapter 1, verse 6, we learn that they were accepting the scriptures in order to live by them with joy in the midst of a culture that opposed their life. And they just welcomed those scriptures that were actually bringing persecution. That's a work of faith. 
They had a life lived according to the gospel so explicitly and so publicly that it served as an example to other Christians in other areas surrounding them. That's what we learn in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. They had a recognition of personal false worship and internal idols. They knew that they were idol, idol worshipers, it says in chapter 1, verse 9, and they left them behind. They left behind all of their idolatry with the aim of living a life of complete worship to God. That's works that come from faith. They had a life so devoted to Jesus that you you live longing for and expecting Christ to come at any moment in time. That's how they lived. They're waiting for him to come. That's a work that comes from faith. In chapter 2, verse 13, they treated the scriptures as if the scriptures were God's very life that shaped the entirety of their life. In chapter 2, verse 14, they were following the example of other believers in other places and other generations who had suffered for the gospel. That's a work of faith. They had an affection for those who had discipled them in the truth of the gospel. That's expressed in chapter 3, verse 6. That's a work of faith. In chapter 3, verse 7, they had a life of commitment to Jesus so strong that it brought comfort to others who preached the word to them. (laughs) What this means is everything they did in life, everything that happened to them in life, they thought of in reference to their belief in Christ. An illustration of that might be found in the Old Testament. How many of you are in the Old Testament right now and you're reading through the law in your tour through and you're, you're thinking law after law. I, I'm in Leviticus right now. That is challenging reading at times. If you're wanting spiritual goose pimples, Leviticus is challenging territory, isn't it? Now this morning I was reading, you don't, don't, you don't have to go look at it, but if you want to glance at it, I, I was reading chapters 14 and 15 today. I won't tell you what they're about, but they're challenging. They're challenging. And the previous number of days I've been reading through all these minutiae of detail about sacrifices and worship. Do you ever find yourself saying, oh, I'm so glad we're not in the old covenant? I am. (laughs) I am. But when you're reading those things, some of them are just about the normalities of life. Things that just happen. And yet they had to think about them in terms of what they believed about God. In fact, if you read the law carefully, you'll find that there isn't one activity of any Jewish person's life that they could ever conduct without having to think about how God fit in it. Now, I know that we would say that the purpose of the old covenant law was to show you how sinful you were and that you couldn't meet the standard of God. Yes, that's one of the purposes of the law, but it's not the whole purpose. Part of the law was to show you what it means to live by faith and that absolutely every detail of your life needs to be seen in connection to what you believe about God. Everything that they wore had to do with God. Everything that happened to them physically, they had to think about God in relationship to it. Do you think anybody ever, ever showed up to the tabernacle to give a sacrifice casually? Well, a couple of guys did. Some of Aaron's sons showed up one day and they gave strange fire meaning this was not authorized, they didn't think about it according to the law, and God made an example of them, and lightning shoots out of the tabernacle and engulfs them and does away with them. And God tells Aaron, you may not mourn for them, you may not change your clothes, you have to stay in the tabernacle, and you, have, and you can't say a word about it. These boys did what they knew they shouldn't have done. They, they were casual. You can't be casual about life. This is looking at all of life from what you believe about God. What part of your life are you negligent to think about in terms of God? But here's here's the beautiful thing. When Paul thought about this church, he thought about their life and it seemed like every decision they made and everything that they were doing in their life had some connection to their belief about God. 
And the more he thought about it and the more he saw of what they were doing and what motivated what they were doing, what they were perhaps limiting themselves from and what they were engaging in, he's so grateful because he's seeing efforts that come from their hearts resting in the sufficiency of Jesus and his work. That's faith. I think that's profound. Really profound. Is that how you live? But even more, is that how we think about and pray for the people in our church? We think about their life in terms of faith. That'll help grow your gratitude. There's a second that we see here. It's not just reflect on a faith-filled activity. A second, reflect on love-driven labor. Love-driven labor. Oh, this is so beautiful here. The word for love is the uniquely biblical term agape. You've probably heard it a number of times. It's a general term in the Bible for love, and it's encompassing all kinds of love, but primarily a love that you choose to offer. It's the kind of love that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know the kind of efforts that are shown in this kind of love. It's patient, kind, not jealous, it doesn't brag, it's not arrogant, doesn't act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, it's not provoked, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. This kind of love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you love that way, it's exhausting, isn't it? Which is exactly the word he uses here. In First Thessalonians, this kind of love labors. It doesn't just work. It's not just active. It labors. And the word for labor here is a word that has an idea of there's a burden that you stay underneath. There's a burden to this and you toil through it. You work through it. You labor through it. It's not easy. And those who love well know how exhausting love can be. Right? It can be. It is. That kind of devotion to other people that restrains your own interests for the spiritual well-being of someone else, that can be depleting. You get to the point where you say, I just don't know if I can, and we, we all have been there. We've all said this, give any more. I'm so worn out by it. I want you to think about those people who are so worn out by it. And because of their devotion to the Lord and their faith and the love that God has put in their heart, they keep pushing through it. And they keep enduring. And they won't turn. And they won't stop. And they don't leave people behind. They keep pushing. Doesn't your heart resound in gratitude towards them? Mine does. Mine does. The last two chapters of this book talks about this kind of love that labors. In chapter 4, verses 3 to 7, this kind of love sheds sexual immorality that would defraud other people. You, you don't have a right to just live however you want and do whatever you want with your body because it impacts other people and you choose not to, you choose not to love people that way in an immoral way. In chapter 4, verse 9, they're taught by God to love others, to be devoted for the spiritual well-being of other people. In chapter 4, verse 10, that kind of love that was in them was expanding to people beyond themselves. They were actually going to other areas outside their own to share the gospel, which is a form of love. We, we go to other countries not because it, it, it is... It is something that shows how great we are. We go to other places because we we love them. We don't want them to die without the gospel. That's why we go to another place. And you can say, well, we got plenty of people around here who need the gospel. We don't have to spend the money and exert all this energy to go somewhere else. Someone else will do that. That's not love. That's not a love that labors. That's a love that is convenient. And probably a love that doesn't even meet the needs of those who are around you. If you won't meet the needs of others, that requires more effort. Chapter 4, verse 11, their love showed that they were leading a quiet life, paying attention to their own affairs, working hard so that they were not idle and dependent on the unbelieving world for their sustenance. 
they appreciated in chapter 5, verse 12, those who labored among them to teach and shepherd them through the word of God, and they were to esteem them very highly because of love. That's a labor of love. It's hard to love your preachers, right? Amen? That was a nervous laugh. You know what's hard to do? It's hard to admonish the unruly. It's hard to encourage the faint-hearted constantly. It's hard to help the weak. It's hard to be patient with everyone, but chapter 5, verse 14 says that's the love that labors. Chapter 5, verse 15, avoid responding in kind to evil that's done to you. What motivates that? The labor of love. Chapter 5, verse 15, you seek to do what is good for each other in the church and others who live around you. What, what motivates that love that labors? So let, let me ask, do you find yourself looking for a way out of a situation that requires a love that is actually exhausting? Is that where your mind goes? How can I get out of this? How can I stop This is where love presses on. Is there anyone in your life, is there anyone in our church that requires you to pursue their best spiritual interest in ways that are personally inconvenient? You're pursuing their best interest and it's it's unsatisfying in the moment. It provides no elevation in your standing with others. It actually causes others to wonder what you're doing. That would be the labor of love, wouldn't it? Is there an involvement in someone's life that will guard, protect, and spiritually strengthen the people of God, people that God has sovereignly put around you, but it's exhausting you? Think about this too. When you live close enough to people to learn these lengths of love, what kind of gratitude does it actually produce in you? Now, here's the challenge. Do you actually live that close to people in the congregation that you see and you hear the testimonies and you experience the labor of love? Because we can come and we can live in such a way with each other, we stay on the fringes of life. But the closer you get, do you see love expressed in exhausting ways? There's a third and final core element of true Christianity that drives our gratitude. It's the steadfastness of hope. This is reflect on hope-fueled endurance. Reflect on hope-fueled endurance. That'll grow your gratitude. Now the word steadfastness is the typical term for endurance Hupomone, from two words in Greek, hupo, that means under, and meno, that means to remain. It means you remain under a weight without being crushed. You're steadfast, you endure, you remain under the weight. It's like what we've been seeing in the Olympics. Have you seen some of that? We were watching some of that last night with, with the kids, and we're watching a guy finish his career on the half pipe, Seeing that, that's just crazy stuff. And I I can't, I look at that and I say, praise God, I'm not into that, you know? It's great to sit on my couch and watch that. And I I could hear him and he was saying at the end, he he, he didn't quite do as well as he had done in the past and he's getting older. And he was saying, my legs just aren't holding out, but he's still trying to do these incredible feats, but the strength is just not in him. But he's doing it anyway because he's pushing through and enduring. That's the idea. It's an endurance beyond what you think you can get to because there is something ahead of you you're pushing for that has a greater glory to it. That's the endurance that comes from hope. And the hope that's described here, you can see it in the phrase. It is hope defined here as hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And I take that last phrase, in the presence of our God and Father, that's the last phrase of the Greek sentence, so I take it with the word hope, and I think that's the best way to to read it. Other versions are a bit different. 
But this fits the context of hope in this book. Hope is the final time when Christ returns and he actually takes his people and presents them to the Father and they are perfect. You ever think on that day? You ought to dwell on that day. You hope for that day. You long for that day when Jesus says it's done and he comes back and he conquers everything and puts it under his feet and then he brings it to the Father and God is all in all, 1 Corinthians 15. That's hope and the struggle's over and the sin is removed and all the opposition to Jesus is done. And there's nothing more in your heart that will ever disappoint the heart of God anymore. And there's no opposition anywhere in the world to him. And all things are new. Isn't that great? You have to live every day under the weight of this present world of sin and rebellion and opposition. Sin in your heart. Sin in relationships. With your mind fixed on what Christ will do when he gives us to the Father. When we stand in front of the Father, perfect and complete. That helps you endure. That says you push further than you think you can actually go. You stay under the weight when you think you're about to be crushed because you know that what awaits you is far better. Far better than just the ease you think will come if you just let up. That's hope that actually endures. Again, you can look through this book. In chapter 5, verse 13, they were, they were told to grieve over the loss of loved ones. And that could have been people in their church who died a martyr's death. Don't grieve like the people who don't have hope. That's not how we grieve. We grieve loss. We don't grieve hopelessly. We know what's coming in the future. We know the resurrection. We understand that. You courage and you comfort others with this hope in Christ. You don't, you don't live ignorantly. Also, chapter 5 is a really interesting chapter where some were teaching in their church that the, the opposition they were experiencing was the final display of the wrath of God. And what they had been taught by the Apostle Paul was that they were not going to be given to that wrath. And if that was true, then what happened to their loved ones? And what are they going through? Don't be ignorant. These are not the days of God's wrath. Those days are coming. And you are not going to be associated with that. He is going to preserve his people from that. You do not have to worry about that. So don't misinterpret your circumstances as that. That's hope. That's staying under the present weight of trial, knowing that God is going to preserve you. That's the steadfastness of hope. It's looking at our government right now and your employer and saying, you're not going to mess with my stability. I'm going to live a quiet life, peaceful life. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to live as if there's more to come. And if I have to lose something, I lose it, but I have hope. If things are taken away from me that I think are are things I I need, then the Lord will provide. I have hope. It's that quiet, peaceful life. Now, it's a steady life. It's a life where you limit yourself. You curb some of your aspirations, maybe even some of your ambitions because your identity and your reputation is more about the the next life, not this one. And what happens to your heart when you hang around someone like that? What happens when you see an example in the church of someone who has been waylaid by opposition and life and they've had loss and they're talking about the Lord and their hope is in the Lord? What happens to you? Does your heart not say, oh, I thank God for that? Do you tell them that? See, that grows gratitude. When you live that way, when you look at people in that light who are in your church, that grows your gratitude. So these qualities of faith-filled activity and love-driven labor and hope-fueled endurance, those are hard to quantify. It's hard to put that in an article. So I've got that interview on Tuesday. I wonder what I'm going to say. I don't know. I say, hey, just go read this verse. That's our church. 
Wouldn't you want to live in a church like that? You do. You do. Every true Christian possesses faith, love, and hope. They do. So they're here. You might have to dig around a little bit, encourage it, but you live with it. So let's, let's cultivate gratitude for those things. Let's pray together. Father, as we finish our morning together, we pray that we would linger long on how we think about these, these qualities of faith, love, and hope, and how they work out in effort and devotion and endurance. And I pray that as we dwell on them intentionally and habitually, that it would cause us to pray for each other and intercede for each other constantly. And the result of that will be we have a congregation that is flooded with joy and gratitude to you. Help us never to take for granted the activity that is obvious and at work around us and in us. To see you at work, expanding our commitment to Christ, expressing our love because of Christ, standing firm underneath the trials because of our hope in the coming of Christ. Lord, help us never to take that work for granted. That is a supernatural and divine work and we pray that it will only increase more and more that we will grow in the things we know to be true. We pray for your help and your aid. We pray for those who are outside of Christ to see the joy of life, the stability of life, the kind of love that exists within the people of God because of what Christ has done and draw them to yourself so that they would leave their idols behind And they would embrace Christ fully and know the joy of life in him and especially eternity with you and your people. We pray for this and trust you with the results, Lord. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.